Hej, and welcome to the history of Denmark. Episode 5. The North Sea Empire. Hello everyone. I want to start this week with a correction. In the episode on the Viking Age, in which I introduced Saxo Grammaticus, I translated the name of his chronicle, the Gesta Danorum, as the History of the Danes, which my father reminded me is incorrect. The correct translation is the Deeds of the Danes. Okay, so last week ended with Swain Falkbeard rebelling against his father, Harald Bluetooth, resulting in the latter's death. Swain ascended to the throne in either 986 or 987. He had his father buried in Roskilde in a church Harald had ordered constructed himself. Beginning with the reign of Swain Falkbeard, we begin to see a shift in the geopolitical role of Denmark. England begins to play an increasingly large role for the Danes, most especially in matters of the church. This is closely tied to the eventual conquest of England by first Swain Falkbeard and then his son, Canute the Great, which we will get to shortly. All you need to know for now is that the archbishops of Hamburg are in for disappointment, as their dream of extending their authority to all of Scandinavia is about to fade away. We know that both before and after Swain became king, he raided England intensively together with his ally Olaf Tryggvason. I mentioned Olaf last episode as he became king of Norway in 995 after the fall of Håkon Jarl. The pair extracted massive sums of Danegil from the English. As you recall, Danegil is the word for protection money paid to the Danes. The attacks of Swain and Olaf are recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle which notes that the pair came to England on the 8th of September 994 with 94 ships and threatened to burn and pillage the city. After they had been bought off, they reportedly dealt unprecedented damage to the coastal settlements in Essex, Kent, Sussex and Hampshire. The English king at this time was Ethelred II, also known as Ethelred the Unready. He paid a large sum to Olaf in 994, making him promise not to raid England anymore. In 999, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that the Danes sailed up the Thames River to Rochester, where they met the army of Kent in battle, and defeated them. This emboldened the Danes, leading to further raids. This continued year after year, with the Danes attacking Devonshire, Hampshire, and many other cities, and defeating several English armies in battle. All of these raids and attacks led up to a major event on the 13th of November 1002, which will have big consequences. Swain's sister Gunhilde was married to the chieftain Pelik, who served the English king as the Earl of Devonshire, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that he betrayed the king when Devonshire was attacked and joined Swain in his raiding. Before we move on, I thought I should mention what happened to Olaf. He had began to quarrel with Swain, marrying his sister Tyra, who had run away from the husband she had been assigned. Swain had married her to Borislav, the king of the Winds, in order to secure an alliance. Another reason for the quarrel was the peace treaty Olaf had signed with England, which led him to abandon his raiding partnership with Swain. Swain was also able to draw the Swedes into the conflict because of a marital alliance to King Olaf of Sweden. 
Olaf was sailing back from an expedition to Wendland, which is also called Pomerania, and he was ambushed by the Danes commanded by Swain, the Norwegian vassal of Swain, Earl Eric, the Wends, and the Swedish. Olaf had only 11 ships with him, whereas the alliance against him commanded over 70 ships. In the Battle of Svalda, which took place either near the island of Rügen or in the sea between Denmark and Sweden, Olaf was decisively defeated, and he himself was killed. The battle took place in the year 1000, and Swain had vassal earls placed in Norway, making himself the king of the country. Let's go back to England. Following the many raids on England, a plot was hatched. On the 13th of November, which is the feast day of St. Bryce, a massacre of the Danes in England was to take place. The massacre on St. Bryce's Day is described by many sources, such as the Chronicle of William of Malmesbury and the Chronicle of John of Wallingford. It also gets a short mention in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Let us go through the different sources and gain an understanding of what happened. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle simply states that in the year 1002, the king had all the Danes in England kill on St. Bryce's Day, because he had heard that they sought to kill him and take his realm. The Chronicle of John of Wallingford is dated to around 1220. John was the abbot of the Church of St. Albans in southern England. Although the Chronicle was in the possession of John of Wallingford, he was likely not the author. The Chronicle opens the story of the massacre by stating that the Danes had become numerous and had conquered many of the best cities in England and that East Anglia in particular was under their control. The author notes that they were different from the English in that they combed their hair every day, bathed every Saturday, and changed their clothes often to show off. Because of these different customs, the author notes that they turned married women into unfaithful harlots and made even the daughters of noblemen their mistresses. This was, according to the author, the cause of much strife and many wars. The king sought to do away with the threat of the rising Danish population through the massacre. It was to take place on a Saturday, the day in the week when the Danes bathed, and no mercy was given based on gender, age, or rank. Even English women who had started families with Danes were killed, and their children as well. He goes on to describe the manner in which the Danes were killed, but I'm going to leave that part out since it's quite brutal. Towards the end, the author claims that the Danes were annihilated so fully that there were no survivors to tell the other Danes back in Denmark what had happened, save for twelve young men who escaped London and sailed down the Thames in a boat. When they reached the coast, they boarded the ship and sailed for Denmark. Okay, so that was the account of the Chronicle of John of Wallingford. There are a few comments to make on this version of the events. Firstly, the author exaggerates the scope and perhaps the brutality of the massacre. It would be absurd if only 12 men survived. Secondly, it provides a stereotypical account of the masculine Danes who steal English women. This stereotype would persist for many centuries. Now, let's see how the Chronicle of John of Wallingford differs from the Chronicle of William of Malmesbury. William of Malmesbury was a monk at Malmesbury Abbey in southwestern England, who lived in the first half of the 12th century. He was likely some kind of librarian as well as a monk, and he is considered one of the first national historians of England. He wrote the Gesta Regnum Anglorum, which means the deeds of the English kings. 
he does not have a favorable view of Ethelred II, and it shows in the points he makes regarding the massacre. William first mentions the many raids on England, stating that they were forced to pay £30,000 to the Danes. Then he talks about the king, and wonders how his reign could be so full of calamities when he was neither very foolish nor excessively heartless. He reaches the explanation that it was because he was haughty. William also describes Ethelred as a bit of a tyrant, saying that he stole the property of English nobles and that he ordered the Danes be butchered, both on the basis of mere suspicion. He remarks that the killing of the Danes was a dreadful spectacle to behold, and while we don't know how many Danes were killed, historians agree that it must have been a significant number. William closes off the first paragraph by remarking that Ethelred was inconsistent toward his wife and that he rarely visited her bed, instead choosing to sleep with harlots. In the next paragraph, William describes how Swain was invited to invade England by a Dane named Turkil, who ruled East Anglia. He told Swain that England was rich and fertile, that the king was a driveling fool who was only interested in wine and women, and thus hated by his own people, as well as mentioning that the commanders of England were scheming and jealous of each other, and that the people were weak and cowardly. This Turkil mentioned in the chronicle is likely Torkil the Tall a Viking chieftain who himself led an army against southern England from 1009 to 1012, where he received the at that point largest payment of Danegild, a sum of £48,000. Here is a fun fact about Torkil's lineage. Some Norse sagas say that his father, Strut Harald, was the son of Gorm the Old, making Torkil the cousin of Swain. Like his father, Torkil had been the chieftain of the Jomsvikings, and he had participated in many battles, one of them being the Battle of Svalder, in which Olaf Tryggvason was killed. Torkil would later be made the Earl of East Anglia by Swain's son Canute. In the last paragraph of William's writings we will examine today, he mentions the reasoning behind Swain's invasion. Besides the many ordinary Danes which were killed in the massacre on the day of St. Bryce, Swain's own sister Gunhilde, together with her husband Pelik, and their son, were also executed. William says that she was a beautiful woman who had converted to Christianity in order to make peace with the English. Lastly, William describes the military campaign of Swain Falkbeard in England. Swain landed in East Anglia, controlled by Torquil, which submitted without resistance. Upon hearing this, Northern England submitted as well, paying the Danegel and giving Swain hostages. The army then headed south, subjugating Oxford and Winchester. Only London resisted Swain, defending Ethelred inside the city. After a failed attack on London, Swain retreated to Bath, where Ethelmer, the ruler of the city, submitted to him. William claims that even when receiving this news, the Londoners would not yield. It was only when Ethelred left the city that they were demoralized and decided to open the gates to Swain. His military campaigns are also described in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and they elaborate on the surrender of the Londoners, explaining that they surrendered because they feared the punishment from Swain if they kept up resistance. We also know that Swain's son Canute assisted his father in the conquest of England. On Christmas Day, 1013, Swain was declared the King of England. However, he would die the next year. He was at first buried in York, but his body was later moved to Roskilde, where he rests to this day with his father Harold.
He had been the king of Denmark for 28 years, Norway for 12 years, and England for two months. Ethelred returned from his exile in Normandy, driving out Canute, who had succeeded his father as king of England. The throne of Denmark had passed to Canute's older brother, Harold II. Harold had been the regent of Denmark while Swain and Canute were conquering England, but we know almost nothing about him. Meanwhile, Norway had been usurped by Olaf II, a descendant of Harold Fairhair. Okay, so now we have an overview of what happened to the realm of Swain immediately after his death. Knud Svensson, more commonly known as Knud the Great, is one of the most powerful monarchs in the history of Denmark, and he was certainly a powerful figure in his own time. He was two years old when his grandfather Gorm died. His mother was a Polish princess, likely the daughter of Miesko I. In the Knutlinga saga, his physical appearance is described, and I quote, Knut was exceptionally tall and strong, and the handsomest of men, all except for his nose, that was thin, high-set, and rather hooked. He had a fair complexion nonetheless, and a fine, thick head of hair. His eyes were better than those of other men, both the handsomer and the keener of their sight. Canute is not mentioned in any sources until Swain's invasion of England is described, where he accompanied his father. Although the modern Kingdom of Denmark is technically larger in terms of square kilometers because of Greenland, Denmark at the time of Canute was quite big. At the time of Swain's death, however, Canute had no land, only an army. He was declared king by his troops, and he withdrew to his brother Harold in Denmark. It is speculated that he proposed that they rule together jointly, but his brother refused. Harold then supposedly lent his forces to Canute on the condition that he would not try to take over Denmark. After one year of gathering men and ships from Sweden, Norway, Poland, and Denmark itself, Canute had an army of 10,000 men and 200 longships ready. The ships set sail in the summer of 1015. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes the movements of the army year by year. It first sailed around Kent to Wessex, where Dorsetshire, Wiltshire, and Somersetshire were plundered. Meanwhile, King Ethelred was starting to get sick. He left the command of his armies to his son, Edmund Ironside. The Earl of Mercia defected to Canute with forty ships, and Torquil the Tall also joined him. Canute spent the winter with his new allies, waiting to resume the campaign in the spring. While Canute was spending the spring of 1016 subduing Northumbria in the north, a Norwegian Jarl named Eric joined him, and he was placed on the earldom there. On April 23, 1016, King Ethelred the Unready died, and his son Edmund was elected king in London. Canute moved south, splitting his army in two, so that he could attack Edmund's army with one half, and besiege London with the other. Two indecisive battles were fought in Somerset and Wiltshire, after which Edmund drove away the army besieging London and defeated them. He suffered heavy losses, however, and retreated to Wessex to get more men. Canute had London besieged again, but after failing an assault, he withdrew to Kent. The Earl of Mercia defected back to the English side, and Canute sailed up the river Orwell to plunder Mercia. Toward the end of the year, on October 18, 1016, 
Canute attacked Edmund's army, leading to the Battle of Asandun. It took place in either southeast or northwest Essex. The Earl of Mercia withdrew from the battlefield in the midst of battle, indicating that his return to the English side may have been trickery, and the Danes won the battle decisively. Edmund fled to the west, but Canute followed him and defeated him again in Gloucestershire. The two leaders met on an island to negotiate peace terms. The Danes would get all of England north of the Thames, while Edmund would be left with Wessex. However, they agreed that upon the death of one king, the whole of England would go to the other. Edmund died on the 30th of November that same year of unknown causes, although we know that he took a wound in one of the battles, so he may have died of an infection. Which means that Canute was the king of all of England towards the end of 1016. He was crowned at Christmas and recognized by the nobility in January the next year at Oxford. The next summer, he wed the widow of Ethelred, named Emma. Shortly after their marriage, a son was born to them, Hartha Knut. Knut also had two sons from a previous marriage, Swain Knutson and Harold Harefoot. To secure Hartha Knut's position as heir, Knut decided to get rid of possible claimants to the throne from the House of Wessex. One of the sons of Ethelred was killed on Canute's orders, and some English nobles were also executed. Another two of Ethelred's sons were driven into exile in Normandy, one of them being Edward the Confessor, who will become King of England one day. Two of Edmund's sons also fled the country. Canute raised colossal amounts of money in taxes to pay his armies, after which he sent most of them home. He organized the country into earldoms, giving the earldom of East Anglia to Torquil the Tall, as I mentioned earlier. There was a bit of scheming, and a few earls were replaced here and there, but otherwise, Canute's rule of England was stable. In general, he is recognized as a capable administrator and a wise ruler, and we will talk a bit more about this when we have covered how he came to rule over Denmark and Norway as well. In 1018, the brother of Canute, King Harold II of Denmark, died at the age of 29. A Danish coroner published a book in 2015 in which she claimed that Swain Falkbeard suffered from a heart disease called Brugada syndrome, which he passed on to several kings in his line. This explains the early death of Harold II and many future kings. Anyway, the Kingdom of Denmark was passed to Canute. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that in 1019, Canute traveled to Denmark with nine ships, likely to assess the situation, and he stayed there for the winter. During his stay, he wrote a letter to the English people. First, he greets them and promises to be a just and pious king. He emphasizes that he has brought an end to the Viking attacks on England, since he is now the king of Denmark. In the last half of the letter, he explains how good of a Christian he is, and that he wishes for God's blessings, and that his people should strive to be good Christians, etc., etc. In 1027, King Canute traveled to Rome, where he attended the crowning of Emperor Conrad II of the Holy Roman Empire. Again, he wrote a letter home, and this letter is an important source for his reign, since it gives insight into international relations and the situation in England and the Scandinavian countries at the time. Canute styles himself as Knut, 
king of all England, and of Denmark, and of the Norwegians, and of part of the Swedes. Even though he would not become king of Norway until the next year, but it was a way of putting his claim forward. He then greets his archbishops, his noblemen, and the common folk. He then explains that he has visited Rome to pray for the remission of his sins and for the safety of his kingdoms and his subjects. Canute also says that he has visited the holy sites in Rome and attended the coronation of Emperor Conrad and celebrated Easter with him, the Pope, and many other rulers from Europe. He then brags a bit, telling his subjects that the Emperor showered him with expensive gifts and that he has struck a deal with him to make it easier for Danish and English pilgrims to travel to Rome without facing barriers and tolls on the way. He also says that he had the tax burden on his archbishops reduced, meaning that less money went to Rome. Canute then stresses that he has accomplished everything he wanted to in Rome, and vows that he will rule justly, even going so far as to implore his counselors to speak against him if he should ever do anything unjust as king, and that all people in his kingdoms, high or low, and I quote, should have the right to enjoy just law. He ends this second letter by saying that he will stop by Denmark on his way back, then travel to England as soon as he is able, and he reminds people to pay their taxes. Meanwhile in Norway, the usurper Olaf II, known to history as Saint Olaf the Holy, was having trouble. He had fought a sea battle with his Swedish allies against Knut in 1026, which he had lost. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle confusingly records that the Swedes won the Battle of Helgeå, as it is called, but this is false. Saxo Grammaticus and an Icelandic saga both state that Knut won. The battle left Knut as the dominant ruler in Scandinavia, and it set the stage for his invasion of Norway two years later, in 1028, when he had returned from Rome. Olaf's own vassals supported the invasion, and he was driven into exile in Russia. Canute placed Håkon Eriksson as his vassal regent in Norway, and had himself proclaimed king. This Håkon was the son of Erik, who joined Swain Falkbeard in his invasion of England, and was made the Earl of Northumbria, as I mentioned earlier. Håkon's reign over Norway would be short, however, as he died in the shipwreck two years after he was made regent, and Olaf the Holy tried to claim the kingdom once more. However, Olaf was killed in battle by a peasant army loyal to Canute in 1030. Canute was now the king of Denmark, Norway, England, and parts of Sweden. Some historians have dubbed his realm the North Sea Empire, or the Anglo-Scandinavian Empire. We will end this week by looking at how the North Sea Empire affected the cultures of England and Denmark. As I mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, things are not looking good for the Archbishopric of Hamburg. Canute knew that if he allowed German ecclesiastical influence in Denmark, then the emperor would not be far behind, as had happened in Eastern Europe. Thus, he looked to England and had English bishops appointed to Danish seats, and English saints were also introduced. The first Danish stone churches were likely built by English masons, and English styles of art and architecture began to gain ground in Denmark. Another area where the influence of England can be seen is coinage. The Danes had been used to weighing silver for payments, but Canute introduced coinage in the English fashion, and had his portrait made on one side of the coins, like the previous kings of England had done. 
as examples of the English and Danish cultures influencing each other in terms of art, I have chosen the Gosforth Cross and the Hogbacks of Ingleby Arncliffe and Gosforth. The Hogbacks are a unique type of stone monument unknown to Denmark and England before the two cultures met. They show both pagan and Christian imagery, and the style in which they are decorated is also indicative of the fact that English and Danish cultures were blending together. The Gosforth Cross is a 4.4 meter tall cross which stands in the graveyard in the village of Gosforth in Cumbria. There are four images on the cross, and the interesting thing about them is that they can be interpreted as both Christian and heathen. One image shows either Christ being crucified or the Norse god Baldr, or both. The most likely interpretation is that it is meant to show both as a way of unifying the local Christian English culture with the old ways of the Danes. You can visit thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com to see images of Canute's coinage and the Gosforth Cross and the Hawkbacks. On the 12th of November, 1035, Canute the Great died aged 39 years old, perhaps of the heart disease I mentioned earlier in this episode. He died in Shaftesbury, Dorset, and was buried in the old minister in Winchester, Wessex, from which he ruled. 600 years later, during the English Civil War, Parliamentarian soldiers plundered the church and the bones of Canute were scattered onto the floor, after which they were placed randomly in different chests, mixed together with the bones of other rulers, such as William II of England. We will deal with Canute's succession next week. That's all for episode 5 of the History of Denmark. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next time when we look at the sons of Canute the Great and Magnus the Good, the bastard son of Olaf the Holy.